guys, welcome to Relatable. I am so pumped for you to listen to this conversation that I'm having today with Dr. Neil Shinvi. We are going to talk about critical theory and y'all, it is about to blow your mind. So this is a longer episode and we honestly could have gone on for maybe another hour or two. You just don't realize how insidious critical theory is until you listen to this conversation. You are going to want to pause. You're going to want to take notes. You're probably going to want to listen to it twice. You're going to want to, uh, you're going to want to send this to your pastor. You're going to want to send it to your Christian friends, your secular friends, your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters, your boyfriend your spouse, everyone you know, you want to listen to this episode. It's absolutely fascinating, and I'm just so excited for you to listen to it. Okay, since I think I've hyped it up enough, without further ado, here is Dr. Neil Shenvey. Neil, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Allie. Can you tell everyone who you are and what you do? Oh, my name is Dr. Neil Shenvey, and I am actually a stay-at-home homeschooling dad at the moment but I am trained in theoretical chemistry and worked in academia for uh, about 15 years. Awesome. And can you tell everyone how you came to study critical theory and maybe more specifically critical race theory? Yeah. So we have to go back a little bit. I became a Christian in graduate school. I grew up in a great, very loving home, but not in a religious household. And I came to faith through knowing my future wife, Christina, through reading C.S. Lewis, through going to church, and kind of realizing that I'd built my life on being the very best and the very smartest. And then you come to me and say, actually, you're a sinner who needs forgiveness. And your belief in God is just this vague build-a-bear God that you've never really wrestled with the real God. That was devastating to me initially, but I realized I had to follow him if he's real. And so Mm. I trusted in Jesus and that began my Christian walk, but then I became interested in apologetics because I was in grad school, um, surrounded by very intelligent, smart people, many of whom were atheists. So I wanted to share with them, how, how do you convince them that Christianity is not just a fairy tale, that it's true, the Bible's reliable, God exists. So I began reading about apologetics, kind of the really standard stuff like C.S. Lewis. I read a lot of Tim Keller's work. And Mm -hmm. I was really interested in the intellectual side of my faith and sharing the gospel with my colleagues who were mainly atheists. So I was very apolitical. I was not interested in how you voted. I was not interested in a lot of these social issues. Cultural apologetics was not on my radar at all. Right. So that was what I was doing for, for like a decade after becoming a Christian. And then about five years ago, I began noticing uh, both people I knew personally and even public Christian leaders beginning to drift theologically. Mm. And it would often begin with an interest in social justice, which I assumed meant applying biblical principles to our laws. Mm. But that's not what was meant, because these same people began espousing beliefs that were farther and farther away from orthodoxy. But I couldn't figure out why. How do you go from saying, I want to care for the poor and I want to, uh, you know, oppose racism? I'm like, of course, sure, we should do that as Christians. Right. But then they were saying things like, well, I don't think Jesus is the only way to God. Or I think we need to embrace all forms of sexuality as beautiful. And I was like, how do you go from point A to point B? I just couldn't figure out the connection. So about four or five years ago, 
providentially, I met my really good friend now, Dr. Patrick Sawyer, who has a PhD in education and cultural studies and teaches at UNC Greensboro. And he was writing his dissertation on uh, the social foundations that are related to critical theory. And when he described his work to me, a scientist, I said, man, this sounds a lot like what I'm hearing, even within the evangelical community. And he was just incredulous. He he said, "I, I got into this area to share the gospel with my super secular progressive colleagues. I wanted to build a bridge so I could speak their language. But there's no way that conservative evangelical Christians are adopting these ideas. That, that's crazy. They're so wildly unbiblical. So we actually had this sort of semi-heated conversation for a few weeks. And then we, we came to agree that actually, yes, these ideas are finding their way into Christianity. And people are not just adopting a few new beliefs about politics. They're adopting a new worldview. Mm. And that's why we're both very concerned. So you would say that the bridge from Christians and uh, maybe formerly conservative evangelical Christians saying, hey, I care about racism, I care about injustice, we should apply social justice to these areas in order to solve problems. The bridge between that and saying, hey, maybe other religions can also find their way to heaven, find their way to God, and we should celebrate all kinds of sexualities. Is critical theory, that that's the bridge between those two things? Yeah, at least for many people today. I think that's the that's water that we're swimming in right now has been really, uh, I want to say polluted. It's been tainted or uh, by this ideology that derives from critical theory, which is a very broad area of knowledge. So we have to be mm-hmm. a little bit more precise. But that's, yeah, that's why today people are going from point A to point B in, in their theology. And tell us what critical theory is. And I know we'll spend a lot of time talking about this, but first, if you could kind of just give a, a brief summation uh, of what it is. Yeah, I like to, when people say, well, just give me a, you know, a one-sentence definition of critical theory. It's like saying, give me a one-sentence definition of, say, feminism right. or a one-sentence definition of science. <laughs> right. And it, like, well, well, that's that's pretty complicated. I'll try to boil it down really uh, in, a, in a brief synopsis. So people pretty much agree that Uh, Karl Marx alone invites consensus as the first true critical theorist. That's a Mm. quote from Bradley Levinson's book, Beyond Critique. And critical theorists in later decades didn't adopt his ideas about economics per se. They were more interested in his ideas about how power operates to create social inequalities, right? How, How does power function our societies? So the term critical theory was coined by a guy named Max Horkheimer in a 1937 essay, and he and other philosophers were trying to apply Marx's theories more broadly than just economics. They wanted to apply it to things like culture and mass media. Mm. But that was that was in the 30s and 40s, mainly a little later by Marcuse and people like that. Uh, but the field of critical theory has grown tremendously. So if you look at like a a genealogy of critical theories, critical social theories. It includes entire disciplines like second wave feminism, black feminism, post-colonial studies, critical pedagogy, queer theory, critical race theory. These are all examples of critical social theories, and they're all concerned with understanding how power produces domination and oppression and social inequality. Okay. Gotcha. And how is that manifesting itself? First, let's talk about how it's manifesting itself in evangelicalism. 
Okay, well, let's back up a little bit. So although we, okay, that's where critical theory comes from, but what are we seeing today? So today you hear terms like, you may have never heard the term critical theory. Like what's critical theory? Well, you've probably heard these terms, intersectionality, right. white privilege, white fragility, heteronormativity, colorblind racism. So you're like, oh, I've heard those terms. In fact, they're on the news pretty much every night. Mm -hmm. the, I, hear, I hear my senator using terms like that. I, mm -hmm. I see it in everywhere. If you've been on a college campus in the last five years, if you walked past one, you've seen people talking about these ideas. So those terms come from what, what I like to call, but Pat and I like to call contemporary critical theory. That's just this manifestation of critical theory that you see today that's influencing everything from politics to academia to the church today. And people label it with things like cultural Marxism, identity politics, critical social justice. Uh, Peter Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose coined the really funny term grievance studies. Mm -hmm. these, all these fields that are unearthing these grievances regarding race and sex and uh, sexuality and physical ability. So whatever you want to call that ideology, that's what we're seeing in our culture today. And it's based around sort of four central ideas. I'll really quickly run through them. And when I get through them, I'm going to read just a, a few quotes from the primary sources. And you'll say, oh, man, yeah, I totally recognize that thinking. I didn't know what to call it, though. So here, here's one quote. This idea is the idea of the social binary. Uh, here's a quote from Vincenzo and D'Angelo. They write, for every social group, there's an opposite group. The primary groups that we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability status, religion, and nationality. So they would view society divided along oppressor groups and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, mm -hmm. etc. So for all these different groups, and you're either a privileged oppressor or you're a subordinate oppressed group. Mm -hmm. And there are just charts and figures and lists of these various oppressions. So that's one piece that, again, we recognize. That's why it's often called a cultural Marxism. Right. I dislike that term, but you're kind of seeing how they're taking Marx's idea of a, a, a class warfare and applying it to other identity markers like race and sex and sexuality. Um, another key idea is op oppression. So you hear oppression today, and it doesn't really mean what the dictionary says it means. So the dictionary defines oppression as cruel, and prolonged unjust treatment and control. That's oppression in the dictionary. But the word oppression, like many other words, has been redefined. Here's a great quote. In its new usage, oppression designates the disadvantage and injustice some people suffer, not because a tyrannical power coerces them. It's not what it means. It's because of the everyday practices of a well-intentioned liberal society. Mm. So oppression is not about you know, coercion, violence, cruelty. It's about these subtle, insidious ideas that have shaped our culture and that we accept as common sense. According that to is, critical theorists. According to critical theorists, yes. So they're, they're trying to unearth the ways in which, quote unquote, oppression influences everything. It's, it's, mm. it's, but it's, it's subtle. It's insidious. You don't notice it. You think what's common sense and normal, things like, um, you know, object, objectivity, the meritocracy, work, hard work, um, those ideas that we take for granted as normal and we see other things as strange or wrong or abnormal, those ideas are actually forms of oppression. Right. Uh, yeah. And can, can you tell me where does it come in? Is it just strictly from 
the collectivist nature of Marxism that in analyzing the so-called oppression or this new definition of oppression, that they define oppressors and the oppressed not by any action that mm. they have done or even any attitude displayed, but strictly by typically like immutable characteristics. Like you would be part of the oppressed class just because you're a white male. It doesn't matter if you are uh, also poor. It doesn't matter if maybe you've actually literally been oppressed your whole life. How did they come upon these categories of who is the so-called oppressed and who is the so-called oppressor just based on your group identity? Yeah, it's very complicated. So the ideas kind of go back to Marx and also a man named Antonio Gramsci, who's an Italian neo-Marxist thinker. But his idea was that he was asking, Gramsci was asking, why haven't the workers revolted yet? Why, and why hasn't there been this glorious communist revolution? And his answer was because the workers have, and this goes back to Marx too, they have absorbed the ideas of the bourgeois. They have mm. adopted these ideas like, well, if I work hard enough, then I can make it. I can, I can succeed. I, if I, I, or I deserve to be a worker because I'm not as smart as the ruling class. So he said, Ramshi said, that they are actually participating in their own oppression because they have absorbed this false consciousness and they need to be liberated in their thinking. So they need to, need to achieve what was, what's now called a liberatory consciousness where they wake up to their oppression and then they can actually work against the oppression that's, that's creating this injustice. And that again, and then you had Foucault much later saying that all truth claims are essentially bids for power. And so whenever you make any claim about what's true, you're actually getting people to buy into your it's a bit it's a it's a way to gain power over them so that's why you'd have people that say well i you know i'm a white male but i've never actually oppressed people i i am not racist they'd say yes but you're complicit in this regime of truth you're complicit in these this racist culture and you are part of this collective oppressor class not based on their actual behavior but based on their social location mm. and similarly uh, you can have a person who is actually quite privileged in terms of they're educated, they're rich, they're powerful, but because of their race or their gender, or their sexuality, they would still be considered part of an oppressed group. And they, so that's that makes very little sense, although I'd, I'd actually add that the idea of intersectionality says that, yeah, you actually can be both an oppressor and an oppressed person at the same time. So a white woman like you You'd be oppressed with respect to your gender because you're a woman, but you'd be an oppressor with respect to your race because you're white. So that's, again, the idea of intersectionality is that we can have overlapping identities that contribute to our experience. And how do these intersectionalists or critical theorists, I guess, whatever you want to call them, how would they rank? Because so we've talked about intersectionality on this podcast that you're not just saying, OK, here are your different axes of oppression or here are your different oppression points, but they actually afford you some kind of social capital or they afford mm. you some kind of platform that, okay, if you have this race, this sexual orientation, then you are trusted the most to talk about mm. racism or whatever. But you, for example, like you don't have any credibility whatsoever, even if you've studied critical theory forever, you're not as trusted as the person who has the lived experience of someone who apparently gives them the oppression points to be able to credibly talk about this stuff. How do these critical theorists kind of 
like rank the oppression because in the conversations about race that we're having right now, I am considered, you know, mm-hmm. the most the most privileged, even though I technically have an oppression point from being a, a woman. So yeah. who decides? Who decides who gets the social capital based on their oppression points to be able to talk about certain things? What, what a great segue. So to understand that, the, the critical theorists will actually dispute the idea that there's a there's a hierarchy of oppression. They'll say there's no fundamental oppression, or they will generally deny that. So they don't really they, they claim to not rank oppressions. However, you're absolutely right that they do believe that your social location, so where you are in terms of your race or your gender or your sexuality, that does indeed give you authority based on your oppression. And why is that? Well, this sort of third idea is has to do with lived experience. Mm. The idea of lived experience is that, you know, we're all we're all socialized into these oppressive ideologies, right? We all buy into the patriarchy just from our daily interactions. We buy into white supremacy. We buy into heteronormativity. That's just we're inculcated into these ideas constantly because of the media, because of education, whatever. That's like what the book White Fragility argues, right? That it's just absolutely. It's just in us. We're, we're at, as a white person in the society, you are, she would say, you are just, you have a racist worldview by the fun, by the function of being a white person in a, in a white supremacist society. Now, but that's true. Now, critical theorists would say, but that's really true of all people. So everyone imbibes these ideas with their sort of mother's milk. However, a person of color experiences life as a person of color. They, they they can, and because of that, they experience systemic racism, they experience being treated wrongly, and because of that lived experience, they can achieve what's called a liberatory consciousness where they see through these lies, these arbitrary bids for power that are is imposed on them by the ruling class. So that they so that's how colloquially they get woke. Mm. They wake up, they say, wait a minute, I can see through these lies now. And now they have what's called a double consciousness. They can see themselves both from the perspective of the oppressor, and also they have this oppositional consciousness and say, I now know that I have a better grasp on reality because you, oppressor, you are blinded to reality because you have both conscious and subconscious reasons to ignore the reality of your oppression. But as a person of color, as a woman, as an LGBTQ person, I can see through my lived experience, I have a better access to the truth than you do. And so you need, so I have, with that knowledge comes authority. Mm. I have the authority to speak on my oppression in a way that you shouldn't really contradict. So this is a phenomenally amazing quote uh, from the book, Race, Class, and Gender. Uh, the authors write, the idea that objectivity is best reached only through rational thought is a Western and masculine way of thinking that we will challenge throughout this book wow. and that they challenge that idea of objectivity through the testimonies of oppressed people through, yeah, lived experience. Again, through lived experience because their lived experience gives them access to truths that you are blinded to as an oppressor so is this the same thing as i have a very rudimentary understanding of this but standpoint epistemology mm-hmm. is this similar to that can you explain what that is yeah, standpoint epistemology also is a pretty broad collection of ideas, but in the way it's used by critical theory, it would say that, yes, again, y- your perspective on truth is conditioned by your social location, mainly whether you're an oppressor or an oppressed person. And crucially, they're not just saying, well, it's all relative. They're not saying that. It's, they're not, it's not 
postmodernism, they're saying there is an objective truth out there, but people that are at the bottom, people at the margins, people that are oppressed are better able to see that truth because the privileged person is blinded by their privilege. So that's okay. the difference. So, and so um, it's not just that, oh, you have your truth, I have my truth. They actually would say, no, there is a truth, but some people are uniquely equipped to see that truth because of their oppression. And when they're talking about truth, they're not, they're obviously not talking about like data, for example. Mm. Like, for example, we hear a lot from, you know, far left feminists or I guess just feminists in general that there is a gender wage gap. And no matter mm. how many times you tell them, okay, but if you control for all of the factors between a male and a female, they actually don't make, uh, you know, different salaries. They actually make the exact same. But if it's uncontrolled, that's where the gap is, whatever. They reject that data to continue to insist that we are oppressed by a patriarchy. Is it because in this kind of standpoint epistemology world or this idea that the oppressed has a better understanding of what this so-called truth is than the oppressor, that they reject conversations about um, about data or about numbers or about things that whether you're an oppressed or an oppressor, you can see because the truth that they're talking about isn't really, is it, I, I don't know. I guess you said it is objective truth, but it, it can't be actually revealed by data. Does that make sense? What well, I'm saying? Is what, that what they're saying? Yeah, no, it, it, no. So it's interesting. It's a great question, Ali. So what they would say, this is going to sound wild, they would say that when you appeal to data and evidence and science, you're actually appealing to the master's tools. So you're appealing to a system that's been devised to justify white supremacy and the patriarchy, right? So when you start quoting these so-called studies, these so-called scientists, they're saying, well, we reject that whole way of talking as a, a, a way to justify oppression, there are other, they would say there are other ways of knowing. So this is going to sound, well, I'm going to quote to you from uh, Ricky Wilkins' book, Queer Theory, Gender Theory. She says that uh, of all the, okay, this, let me find it. Um, uh, this is his interesting. He's talking about gender, but she says, objectivity is meaningless when it comes to gender and queerness because the very notion of queerness, the production of some genders is queer and the search for their origin and meaning are already exertions of power. So, that's gender and, and sexuality there. But she would take that sort of postmodern approach and say, all of your claims, all of your appeals to evidence and science and reason are just a way for you to justify why, oh, there's not really a wage gap. Well, yes, there is. And you can't see that because you're relying on Western male forms of knowledge. Mm. But there are other ways of knowing that are intuitive, um, emotive, that, that those are feminist ways of knowing, or those are indigenous ways of knowing that are equally valid. So then they're, they're, it's, it's a weird kind of objectivity. They're saying right. there is truth, but we're not going to accept the normal definition uh, of truth. Well, yeah, they, they, would say, they would say that they're not they're rejecting the enlightenment model for how we know the truth. They mm -hmm. reject that. Even, they, they said other ways. Even going to I've seen this going around. You talked about uh James Lindsay, I've seen him retweet a lot of this stuff. Obviously, he's a math guy. Obviously, I know that you um, your expertise is chemistry, but that requires you to deal with a lot of math. You've seen so-called math educators on Twitter saying, well, two plus two doesn't always necessarily equal four. It depends 
on what two is and what the other two is. Yep. And they play this game that I, I am not a math expert. That's what I do, what I do now, because I, I like kind of subjectivity. I like being able to reach different conclusions and things like that. But even I seem to recall something about units. So what these people do is they say, okay, well, two cats and two dogs doesn't equal four cats. And so two plus two doesn't always equal four. But again, we know that it equals four animals. I mean, so how are they, people who claim to be experts in math, how how are they arriving at these conclusions? And and what is the end result um, to pushing objectivity, even mathematical objectivity, into the realm of critical theory and total subjectivism? Right. So that you have to understand the great question. What's the motivation? Why would you want to dispute the idea that two plus two equals four, right? Isn't that good for everybody? Shouldn't right. we all want to affirm that logic is, I mean, logic isn't a Western construct. Like I seem to recall like non-Western culture is dealing with things like syllogisms and logic. They might have not have formalized it. But the, the point is, why do that? And the answer is the end goal of critical theory kind of from the beginning was the transformation of society. And and today, the the term that's usually used is social justice. Mm. Their goal is to disrupt and deconstruct and dismantle these oppressive systems and structures in order to create society in which social justice can be achieved. Now, that term is kind of slippery because it can be used in a biblical way. You can say, I define social justice as biblical justice. Well, okay, you can define it that way, but the way that they're defining it is not that way. So here's a quote from Mary McClintock. She writes, "Um, social justice is the elimination of all forms of social oppression where social injustice takes many forms based on a person's gender, race, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, et cetera. So so she said she defines social justice as the dismantling of all these oppressive structures based on these axes of race, class, gender, etc. So that's what critical theorists mean today when they talk about social justice. They mean undoing these oppressions as they're defined by critical theory. And so why play these games with two plus two equals four? The answer is they're trying to dismantle colonialism. They're trying to dismantle this Western way of approaching everything because in their minds, we'll only get real social justice when we've torn down you know, the, the idea that Western thought is supreme, the idea that whiteness is supreme, the idea that that men are supreme, that we have to tear and we have to, we have to <laughs> there's, a ter- there's a technical term for it, which is they, they, the queer theorists want to queer the space. They want to queer these ideas to basically destabilize these values and norms and point out, yeah, this so-called objective knowledge is not so objective as you think. That's why they're playing these games, because they want to challenge what in their mind, oppressive systems. I'm not seeing the connection between masculinity and objectivity or colonialism and objectivity, yeah. because like you said, two plus two equaling four is is not a an exclusively Western concept. I would have thought, and I think most people would have thought that that's just a, a universal concept. So who, who made that connection? So the, okay, Again, that's complicated. The idea is just that they tend to look at society today. So they would say that the way these, so they would say, maybe you twist their arm, they're like, okay, fine. We admit it that people besides the Greeks believed that, or the Egyptians believed that two plus two equals four. They, okay, fine. But today, society is functioning today with certain values that are considered universal and good and right. 
like math or, or science or logic or reason. And they were they're trying to see the ways in which those supposedly objective values are actually justifying oppression. So take the example of the, the gender wage gap, right? You know, if you ask a, a feminist, if you press them really hard and say, are you really claiming that reason is a masculine domain? Because that actually sounds pretty darn sexist. Right. They would say, well, they're not exactly saying that. They're just saying they want to to knock the weapons out of the hands of these people that are oppressing us. They're using they're using reason and studies and science to create to justify this oppressor oppressed dichotomy. We want to dismantle that that power. Mm-hmm. So but again, it's it's not we could go a long time here. <laughs> they're very pragmatic. often if you press on some of these ideas, even a little bit, they just collapse. Right. But the goal is not to create this long, careful syllogism, this long deductive argument. Their goal is very practical. They want to get rid of oppression and they will kind of do what it takes to get rid of oppression. And by oppression, they might not necessarily mean tangible oppression because again you could point at the data and say you know women are sometimes they're making even more than men are and you could talk the same about some areas of um systemic racism that people claim are there but when you look at the data aren't Uh, they're not necessarily talking about that they might just be talking about a a, a oppression of of consciousness that again Mm. you can't really argue against because you don't know someone's consciousness but if the oppressed say that well the consciousness of my particular or uh, my particular oppression group is oppressed then the oppressor the privilege just kind of has to agree with that because they haven't lived that experience. And so you get something called, for example, like white guilt where, okay, we say, okay, well, what can we do? Like, how can we help you? And some critical theorists, I I guess, would say, well, we need to upend the entire system and flip this over. And I don't know, move this into a socialist society that they see as an egalitarian utopia. I don't know. Yeah, I think Christians are often get, I don't want to say sucked in, but they get confused at a minimum because all of these words have been redefined. Yeah. Oppression, we saw, has been redefined very explicitly. Right. Uh, words like white supremacy, racism, these words have been, white whiteness, another one you'll see in a second maybe, but whiteness, that word does not mean what you might think it means, not at all. And so Christians will hear things like, we need to stand up against oppression. They'll say, absolutely, I mean, the Bible calls Bible Jesus oppressed that. and afflicted. Of course, right? So as Christians, we say, absolutely, I, I'm going to get behind your anti-oppression efforts. I'm going to get behind your anti-racist efforts. I'm going to get behind all these different efforts for social justice. We don't question what those words mean until maybe a year or two later down the road. We're like, wait a minute, what did I sign up for? Because we realize the way they were using these terms all along is not how we as Christians or even the dictionary understand these words. Right. This reminds me so much of, I've read some of uh, James Cone, who is the father of Black mm-hmm. Liberation Theology, and I was reading a quote from him the the other day that was saying, you know, one of the goals that we have to accomplish is, or one of the obstacles that we have to get over is what he called, you know, the white middle class resistance to what he probably would have described as, you know, anti-racism or whatever. And he said, 
what we have to do is to make these people hate their whiteness and see Mm -hmm. their blackness, which doesn't make sense until what you just said, that whiteness and blackness in the kind of critical theory world don't necessarily mean just your skin color. It's a state of oppressed or oppressor consciousness, right? Yeah. So there's a incredible there are examples from within the church of people using this language. And I'll just read the quote to you now. Keep in mind, the, the word whiteness has been redefined in this entire book. But this is a book that was put out in 2018 by a major evangelical publishing company. Uh, it grew out of a lecture series at a major evangelical seminary. But there are statements like this. Uh, it's going to sound wild. Uh, keep in mind, they're redefining whiteness here to mean something like a system of white supremacy or a, 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 an oppressive culture of racial supremacy. Okay, but here's what they say. Whiteness is best understood as a religious system of pagan idol worship that thrives on mutually reinforcing circularity between the image, the ideal or the form, and the social construction of those who worship it. As idolatry, whiteness must be dealt with like any such cultic system. Its high places must be torn down and its altars laid low. Christian discipleship that entails a deconversion from whiteness is necessary if any true experience of reconciliation with God, others, the creation, and ourselves is to take place. That is an evangelical author writing it in an evangelical book, written for, sponsored by an evangelical seminary. And there are just dozens of quotes like those I could give you where they have just completely absorbed this way of thinking. Yes. Um, Yes, I can think of someone. There was actually there was a, a women's conference a couple of years ago in which um, uh, there was a female speaker. It caused quite the stir online, where she was telling her audience that they had to quote divest from their yeah. whiteness. Now, of course, when we hear the word blackness, typically in context, it is associated with terms like black excellence or almost mm. kind of a connotation of royalty. But when we hear whiteness, we just know even even I know and feel when I see that word that it is a very negative connotation. And we are being yeah. told even implicitly that that's something that we have to repent of. But blackness is something that has to be manifested and lived fully. Um, mm. I, I don't even know necessarily what my question is about that. I guess I want to know how this started to infiltrate this absolute craziness started to infiltrate evangelical circles. Uh, how did it start? I think it starts with uh, appealing to people's compassion because they, or and even maybe their good theology. You know, if you hear someone say, I want to fight oppression, you know, what Christian's going to sit up and say, no, we need to be for oppression. No, Christians should say, man, the Bible commands me to seek justice, to love mercy, to care for the widow and orphan. So if you want to fight oppression, I'm I'm behind you. I'm for you. So that it starts that way. And then you see people that are actually hurting and, and experience racism. There is actual racism in our society. There really is. I can show you data on the alarming number of people, even today, who are opposed to interracial marriage. Uh, I, you can talk to your Black or Hispanic friends uh, and talk about what they've experienced personally. And again, I, I, you know, I talk to many people, but you know, friends who are super conservative politically and theologically, who are Black and are, are no way interested in complaining all the time about racism. And they're on the other end of the spectrum. But you talk to them, they'll say, yeah, man, I, I have experienced some really nasty stuff from professing Christians. Mm-hmm. 
And so we, we can't ignore that. And so when you hear right. those stories, you say, yeah, man, I want to be an anti-racist too. So that's how they get people get drawn in. Right. But then you don't realize these terms have been redefined. So here's a great example of redefining a term like anti-racism. Um, Ibram X. Kendi is a very, very mm -hmm. prominent author. His book, How to, How to Be an Anti-Racist, was like number one, number two on Amazon, number one and number two on Kindle for weeks, right underneath Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. Uh, but here's what he says in his book about anti-racism. He says this, anti-racist policies cannot eliminate class racism without anti-capitalism policies. Mm -hmm. To truly be an anti-racist is to be feminist. To truly be feminist is to be anti-racist. We cannot be anti-racist if we are homophobic or transphobic. To be queer anti-racist is to understand the privileges of my cisgender, my masculinity, my heterosexuality, of their intersections. So when he's defining the term anti-racist, he's bringing in all kinds of other assumptions and other ideas from essentially his worldview that Christians should say, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for. I right. thought I was just going to oppose racial prejudice. And, and so there, that's so the one, one big way people get sucked in is by feeling compassion, wanting to help, and then not realizing that there's really an entire worldview behind these ideas. The second way I'd say um, is, is frankly through its coherence. So people will think they can just, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to read, I'll read D'Angelo, I'll read Kendi, but I'll just pick up, I'll, I'll, I'll just filter it through my Christian worldview. I'll, I'll just pick up things I think are useful. And I don't really think this is a, a book that has an underlying ideology or a viewpoint. And I'd say that's so naive. Mm -hmm. There is a worldview out there. Right. And Telling, I, and I've seen, I'm trying to calm down. I've seen <laughs> well-known evangelical pastors, well-known evangelical organizations recommending to people positively to read White Fragility, to read yes. How to Be an Anti-Racist. Yes, I, and so saying, have I. And, and I think in their minds, if they've read those books, they're thinking, well, Christians can just, you know, kind of eat the meat and spit out the bones. Right. And I want to say that's a bad analogy. It's more like trying to eat the meat and spit out the poison. Right. Because <laughs> people don't know where the poison is. They don't know they're reading a book that's essentially, this is going to sound provocative, this is almost like a religious text. Right. It, it's, it's like saying, it's like handing someone and saying, you know, I see that you're very anxious as a Christian. I recommend you read this book on Buddhist meditation. Mm. Right. Because and well and you're assuming that the person is going to have the wherewithal and the you know reflectiveness to say wait a minute some of this is Buddhist I can't accept that right. or I noticed that you're not very interested and appreciative of science because science is a beautiful wonderful gift that God uses for us to appreciate His creation to build technology to to wonder at what He's made so I think you to appreciate science better should start reading some Richard Dawkins some Jerry Coyne right so, and, and the New Atheists. To, to combat your scientific illiteracy. So wait a minute here. Some of the, they're scientists. There's some ideas they believe they're, that are good and right. we can, but other, I, this is built on a really rotten foundation. So I think that's the other big way that Christians are getting sucked in. And then I guess the final way is through social pressure. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to be called a racist. No one yeah. wants to be called a sexist or right. a bigot. And so 
you know, young, young kids, especially, you, you, you know, you're in high school or college today. It's hard when all your friends are, you know, wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts and all your friends are, you know, putting on uh, safety pins and, and, you know, rainbow stickers to, to say, you know, I do love you. I do love all people. You're all made in God's image, but I can't get behind this worldview. Right. That's, that takes courage. Yes. And I understand how hard it is. And I think that there is also a little bit of false advertising going on in this peer pressure. So we talked about how a lot of these terms have all of these unbiblical assumptions packed into them. So for example, um, being a feminist, there are a lot of assumptions that are packed into being a feminist, at, at least today, that, okay, you can't be a feminist unless you believe in abortion. You can't be a feminist unless you are going to fight against the gender wage gap and unless you're going to fight against patriarchal oppression, whatever that might be, even if it's just in your in your consciousness. You have to believe in all of these things in order to truly be a feminist. And yet, when these young people get the peer pressure saying, you know, aren't you, aren't you a feminist? They're told, well, a feminist just means that you believe that women are equal to men. And so they say, oh, well, yeah, I do believe that men are equal to men. Okay. I am a feminist and I am going to repost that. And I am going to talk about that. Maybe not even realizing that the assumptions are packed in, or maybe eventually accepting the assumptions because they want to accept the basic premise that women are equal and men uh, equal to men in value. And it's the same thing with being an anti-racist. I have a lot of genuinely Jesus-loving Christian friends who have posted a lot of the the Black Lives Matter rhetoric about being Mm anti-racist, anti-oppressive, because when they are talking to a friend who has either experienced racism themselves, they feel compassionate, and then they read some of the materials that they've been given, and they hear, okay, to be anti-racist is to just, it's just like standing up to a bully. That's what they hear. It's just like, you know, if you see someone being bullied in class, it's not enough for you to just walk away and not bully them. You have to stand up and say, hey, stop bullying them. That's what they think anti-racism is. They think that oppression is actually, you know, some kind of physical or systemic oppression. So they say, okay, yeah, I'm going to fight against that too. They accept the advertising or the basic premises of these things without realizing that by propagating some of these terms, they are also, you know, whether they know it or not, promoting Mm -hmm. all of the assumptions that are packed in that they probably wouldn't agree with. Like they probably don't agree with uh, Ibram X. Kendi and, you know, you know, all that intersectional, whatever he was talking about in his book. But in order to accept the basic premise that they believe that all people are equal in value, they feel like they have to take take this terminology. Another, Sorry, I know I'm talking a long time, but I just thought of something that the phrase Black Lives Matter is the same is the same way. There's this quote by Noam Chomsky, who I obviously don't agree with politically, but he says the point of good propaganda is to pick a phrase that no one can disagree with. That's true about Black Lives Matter. Do you believe that Black Lives Matter? Of course I do. But do yeah. you believe in dismantling the, the Western prescribed nuclear family? Do you believe in being anti-capitalist? Do you believe in being pro-abortion? All the things that they agree with? Well, no. So Christians have a battle. Whether or not to use the terminology as they objectively know these words to mean or whether to not use the terminology at all and be um, at risk of being called anti-woman, anti-black or whatever, just realizing that people are going to castigate them for not using the right language. Yeah. 
And I think oftentimes you begin by mouthing the phrase and and not subscribing to the worldview, but you end by embracing the worldview, right? You, yeah, I think it was as it Orwell he said, you you don the mask and your face grows to fit it. So mm. I think people should be very careful that they're not just trying to use these hip terms because they get more and more comfortable. I'm not, and I'm not saying the terms are evil or sneaky. I'm just saying be careful trying to just fit in and not being willing to say. Just it's so simple. Like, can you just tweet Black Lives Matter? Well, I know I tweeted a hashtag like Black Lives in uh, Made in the Imago Day or some long phrase like that, because I want to absolutely say, I know you're hurting. You know, I know my friends are hurting. How can I show them that I care about them, but just not just fall in with the easy, take the easy way and say, just well, just just tweet. It's not going to hurt. Yeah. I just want to make clear to them that, hey, I, I absolutely affirm the sentiment. Of course I do. Uh, and yet I, I really am concerned about these other ideas that are out there that I want to make clear I do not affirm, not because I'm a terrible bigot, I guess, but because <laughs> I think they're genuinely bad for people. Yeah, I want to do what's good for you. And I don't think it's good for you to say want to dismantle the nuclear family. I think that actually would hurt people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good way to frame it in, in terms of I'm not I'm not refusing to uh to tweet this or to say this because I'm just a nasty, hardened, a stickler. Right. I'm doing it because out of love, I want to be very clear on what I believe is good and beautiful as a Christian. Yes, um, yes. So it's a better way to just frame that. What you're, why are you being such a, a prude or why are you being so such a stickler? Out of uh, hopefully out of love. Right. Can you talk a little bit more, building off of that? why critical theory and Christianity are incompati- incompatible. I mean, the big one is that it's, uh, it's a, it is a, it functions as a worldview. What do I mean by that? And then I'm talking about contemporary critical theory, these ideas not going back to Horkheimer. I mean, no one's out there on campus quoting Walter Benjamin and, and, and Horkheimer. They're quoting D'Angelo and Kendi and, uh, and other people, traditional uh, Collins. They're quoting contemporary critical theorists. But why is it so incompatible, these ideas with Christianity? Well, why I would just say it is a comprehensive, coherent worldview. You can't have two worldviews, right? Mm-hmm. They answer fundamental questions about, like, so for example, identity. Who am I? Christianity says, fundamentally, you are a creature of a holy, loving, and good God. That's fundamentally where identity is. What is contemporary critical theory says? It says that your identity is found in different groups that are vying for power. That's the that's the core of who you are. You you are first of all a uh, you know a, a black woman, or you're first of all a Hispanic, a poor Hispanic man, or you're first of all whatever. But Christianity would say no. First of all, primarily you are a made in God's image. Number one, number two, you are a sinner, and number three, you're in need of a savior. Mm-hmm. And those those are core parts of our Christian identity that that will conflict with someone who says no. You're primarily uh, you're based on your. You're defined by your race, class, gender, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And there, there are other. And then things like ethics. You know, what is oppressive? Uh, is God's design for gender or sexuality oppressive? Is the gender binary itself oppressive? Queer theorists would say yes. The gender binary, by definition, by existing, is oppressive because it marginalizes people that are non-gender binary. Whereas for Christians, we'd say no. That will never be part of our core ethical beliefs because we think God created gender and it's a very good thing. Um, 
A big one is epistemology. That is how we know the truth. Mm-hmm. According to critical theory, you know the truth largely because of, of your social location. So if you are an oppressed person, you have this unique authority to speak on the truth of social reality. And what's interesting is people say, wait a minute, if you think that lived experience is so important, then why doesn't my lived experience as a, say, a white male, why doesn't that matter? And the answer is because you're a oppressor who's blinded by his social location. So it's very asymmetric. And then the other thing that happens is, say, wait a minute, well, I understand that as a white male, I am blinded by my oppressiveness, fine. But why can't I quote Thomas Sowell? You know, he's a super renowned black economist. Mm -hmm. And they will say to you because he's speaking from a position of white adjacency. Mm. He is he is speaking from a perspective of whiteness, even though he's a black economist, he has absorbed he's internalized oppression. And that's why he's saying what he's saying. So there really is no response. If you say, well, I think the Bible teaches this, they'll say that is your perspective as a white male. So mm. well, my friend Vadi Balkum says the same thing and he's black. Yeah, but he's speaking from a position of whiteness. He's internalized his oppression. So there's no there's no way to appeal to scripture even or to evidence or to, to reason because your your lived experience as an oppressed person gives you authority to you know to, to stand on. Yes, and that is unbiblical because we know that there there is an objective truth. That doesn't mean that experiences and emotions don't matter because they do matter. And of course, they can reveal things to us. There are things that I know from my experience that you don't know from your inexperience and vice versa. All of that is true. But that doesn't amount to absolute truth. And all of our experiences and emotions are subject to the Word of God and His definitions of things. And even I I think what we're realizing and what I hope someone, for example, like, you know, James Lindsay realizes is someone who believes in math, that two plus two equals four is actually, it's a theological statement. It's mm. yes, it's a mathematic statement, but it's a theological statement. If God doesn't exist, objective truth doesn't exist. Mathematic truth doesn't exist, or it at least can be, um, it can at least be malleable to what people want. Because if God isn't God, then we are all God, and we can define what mm. truth is and what it's not based on our, uh, based on whatever ends we desire. Does that does that make sense? And do you agree with that's that? right? No, it's exactly right. Because the, the idea is, and this is what Foucault is saying, because and the post-structuralists were saying, because there is no God's eye view, there is no God, there's no God's eye view of reality. Therefore, it's all about your own power to impose this is, goes back to even Nietzsche, I guess, but saying you're just imposing your power on others. Who has the most power to impose impose their truths on everyone else? Hmm. Again, a critical theory would actually pull back on that because it's complicated why, but they would say, well, there is truth, but the people that are oppressed are have better access to it. So ethnic gnosticism kind of what Bonnie yeah, so talks Bonnie about. It, yeah. Um, so yeah, th- so there I would just say, and I, you can look at my website, but there are lots of examples I give of how if we really imbibe these ideas from contemporary critical theory, it will just wreck our theology in any number of places. And uh, it really also, I think people, to go back to the idea of harm, it's going to hurt people. It's going to hurt the church and cause incredible division. Just to use, to pick on Robin D'Angelo, who's so popular right now, she says things in her book that are just so, if you accept these ideas, they will just wreck your church. They will tear it apart from the inside. So she says, basically, first she says, um, white fragility is when whites just can't handle the truth about racism in society. So they get, they're fragile, defensive. 
So what are some symptoms of white fragility? Well, it includes things like saying um, you're generalizing, uh, feeling like you're being attacked or singled out, withdrawing, arguing, disagreeing is a sign of white fragility. So you can either agree that you have white fragility or by disagreeing, prove that you have white fragility. Then she goes on to say things like this. Um, a positive white identity is an impossible goal. White identity is inherently racist. White people do not exist outside the system of white supremacy. Uh, and does not mean you should stop identifying as white and start identifying uh, as Italian or Irish. To do so is to deny the reality of racism in the here and now. And this denial would be colorblind racism. So you can't deny being white and be Irish. No, you are white and you're racist. So what does she do? She says, I strive to be less white. To be less white is to be less racially oppressive. So, and then she says in a paper called Addressing Whiteness in Nursing Education, she starts with this quote, the question is not, did racism take place, but rather in which ways did racism manifest in this specific context? It's everywhere. And even she says in White Fragility, it's part of every interracial friendship. She's emphatic. You cannot have an interracial friendship that is not colored by racism. Mm. And, and you're, white people are constantly trying to achieve what she calls white racial equilibrium. They're trying to reassert their dominance. They use their white women tears to reassert their white supremacy. Wow. So can you imagine if a person of color actually believed those ideas that every friendship I have was colored with a white person was tainted by racism, that everything they do is a way for them to reassert their dominance over me. Can you imagine how paranoid and bitter and just miserable you'd be all the time? Yeah. Well, that's what you're letting and hurt. Yeah. That's what you're 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 letting this into the church when you're recommending these books as you know positively. I think it's great to read them sort of evangelistically Critically. to figure out. Yeah, yeah. But but when you're saying this is a good way to think about race, what is a what I'm curious, what does D'Angelo think about a like my parents, my dad's Indian, my wife's my, my mom's white or a, a couple a black man and a, a white wife? How do they navigate the relationship if they right. really believe that every day oh, you didn't take out the trash? It's because you're trying to reassert your white supremacy. It's it's madness and it's going to eat us alive if we embrace it. Right. How have pastors, and I, I just have a couple more questions because I know we've kind of got a long time, but are, are pastors just, are, are they not thinking critically? Do they, do they not know what's behind these? Have they fallen into that Kafka trap of thinking that, okay, uh, well, if I get defensive about white fragility, it's just because I'm, I, I'm racist and I don't want to be racist. So I have to embrace white White Fragility, the book, which, by the way, is written by a white woman who is making probably millions of dollars on what she would call anti-black oppression. So if we want to talk about racism, we can talk about that. But the pastors, are they just not being discerning? Are they giving in to peer pressure? I mean, these are evangelical pastors who I know preach at otherwise very conservative churches, embracing things like white awake, white fragility and things like that. Yeah, I'm not sure why. I think charitably, I think pastors are just trying to, they're trying to reach out to, uh, well, white pastors are trying to reach out to blacks, Hispanics, people of color. The evangelical church for a while was actually making a lot of uh, gains in terms of uh, you know, multi-ethnic churches. People were, were actually looking more and more like the actual kingdom of God, meaning a multi-ethnic kingdom. It's just true. 
the kingdom of God is bigger than, you know, North Carolina, where I live, or the United States, or, or any country, right? The kingdom of God is made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It is. And so it should bother us that we have an incredible amount of racial segregation in our churches. That should, that should bother us. We're like, that's not what heaven's going to look like. It's not what the new heavens and new earth is going to look like. So people want to see multi-ethnic churches as a witness to non-Christians that, you know, out there in the culture, there is ethnic strife. There's, uh, you know, there's gender warfare. There's class warfare out there in the world. But in here, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to show the world. Jesus said, they'll know you by your love for one another. And they'll know you by your unity. So we, the so pastors looking out and saying, we see a racially segregated church historically and even today. We want to overcome that. And so we want to make sure that people of all ethnicities, all races feel comfortable here. Wonderful. I mean, I'm like, amen to that. But then we're imbibing, well, how do you get uh, ethnicity in your church? How do you uh, fight racism in our culture? It exists there. How do you fight it? What, what, what is it? And there they're looking to secular voices that are in, growing increasingly influential and loud in our culture. I mean, we're not saying that white fragility is only being embraced by evangelicals. White fragility was like the number one best-selling book in the United States for three weeks. And it's been on the bestseller list for two years. So I think they're just trying to achieve a good goal, but aren't thinking about the means that they're using to get there. And they're not being really reflecting critically on what people are actually saying. I think this is all quite new. So the, the social justice scholarship, they will actually see themselves really only took off about 20 years ago. So if you went to seminary like 30 or 40 years ago, you maybe kind of knew about postmodernism. You may, might have known about you know, atheism, but you weren't really trained to recognize contemporary critical theory at all. It didn't really exist in its modern form. So that's probably a big reason why. And these theories and these books like White Fragility are actually pushing churches and congregations away from the goal of unity. If your goal is unity and for us to all see each other within the church as brothers and sisters in Christ, to tell someone that a white person is always wrong and is always secretly racist, no matter what they're saying to you, and a black person is always right because of their lived experiences or, or whatever it is, then you're just creating more division. You're going to create fear around having friendships and relationships with people who don't look like you from both races. The white people don't want to, you know, they, they don't want to, they're afraid of, of saying the wrong thing, of coming across as racist or being seen as racist no matter what. They might even assume that a person who doesn't look like them resents them because of their whiteness. And then the other way around as well, black people might start thinking that about white people because this just kind of infects your mind like a mind virus. <laughs> and I would say... That for, you know, I'm, I'm not a pastor and I can't give advice to all pastors, but if we believe that God is who he is, that he is good, that his gospel is good, that his gospel is good for everyone. If we believe Jesus, when he says, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. And part of that is what, you know, we're called to do in Ephesians, to leave all bitterness and wrath and anger along with all malice and to replace those things with love and unity and thanksgiving. If we believe that those things are good and that is the way 
way to true liberation and freedom and to a life of joy and happiness. And if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are black, who are brown, then don't we want that gospel for them? Like, don't we want that message of reconciliation and forgiveness to also extend to them? And that's not to say, hey, you should just forget about all of your, you know, uh, experiences with racism. Let's just not talk about those. You just need to get over it because that's what the Bible says. I'm not saying that, but it seems like too many white pastors think that preaching perpetual grievance to their uh, darker skinned congregants is more loving than preaching than the gospel of peace and reconciliation and unity in Christ. And I think that if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ who are black, we would be preaching the gospel. Mm. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of the best thing we can do to combat critical theory in the church is dialogue. Dialogue is like kryptonite to critical theory because the very premise is there's there's not a dialogue. There's a monologue. There's there's the people with uh, that are oppressed telling the people that are oppressors all about about how bad oppression is. Whereas a dialogue is like, actually, we, we and this is the way the Christian church should operate. We're we're all sinners. We're all blinded, not by our race, but by our sin. And so I need to hear, okay, I'm half Indian, so it's complicated for me, but I I need to hear from whites. I need to hear from blacks. I need to hear from Hispanics. I need to hear from everyone and say, am I reading scripture rightly? Do I understand how we, I don't know. So we we need to gather around the, the scripture as a family in Christ and say, my bond to you is unconditional number one. It doesn't depend on you doing certain things or, you know, behaving a certain way. It depends on what Christ has done for us, number one. And number two, how can I, as your brother in Christ, lay down my rights and listen and empathize and then come together as a family and say, now, what does scripture say? How should we be viewing race or gender or justice from a biblical perspective? And you might disagree, but as long as, but as, long as you're willing to listen and you're, and you're committed to an actual dialogue, the, the hope is that. God, the Holy Spirit, would lead you into all truth. and that. But that's not the way critical theory is very much uh, totalitarian in a sense. It right. tells you the solution, and you're going to obey, or if you don't, you're a racist, sexist, homophobic bigot. Right. Um, whereas we have to say, no, as Christians, we're commanded to think the best of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're commanded. So if I harbor resentment and bitterness and mistrust them, I have to question my own heart first. That goes for everybody. And I would say one more thing. This is important. The best thing that Christians can do to combat the growth of critical theory, especially critical racery within the church, is to resist racism and to resist what I see as a racial backlash where white Christians are like, I'm sick and tired of being told I'm racist. You know what? I'm going to be racist. I'm like, I'm sorry. That's on you. Racism is a sin. And so you don't get to pay them back for singing against you by singing against them. We have to resist this backlash with resist racial apathy and saying, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to not care at all about anything except for reading my Bible and praying. So no, Christians have always been called to care for the widows and orphans, to care about the pro-life movement, to care about. So we can't neglect our duties as followers of Christ. And then I guess the last thing I would say is, and again, mainly to, to white Christians who are listening, like you said, Allie, listen to people's experiences. You don't have to subscribe to this whole worldview. You can you can just listen to what they've actually experienced because I, you know, they're so such sad stories. Um, I'm gonna read a really one quick quote from Eric Mason's book, Woke Church, um, which I know is people are think it's controversial, but there's 
some great passages in it. And one, he talks about how his own father was beaten beyond recognition by a bunch of white men for a crime he didn't commit. And he, that story, he heard that story growing up from his dad. And he said, he said this, the, the story of him being beaten by white men unfairly. He said, these and other experiences colored how I was raised to deal with whites, whether Christian or not. Just as my father's experiences impacted my perceptions about race, so my perceptions will mark those of my three sons. This is how it works. One generation's pain and fears are passed on to the next. Doesn't mean that we have to repeat the sense of racism and bigotry of the past, but it does mean that they impact us in some way. Right. That, understand when people are have experienced real hurt, real hurt, I have my friend Nerva Reddy talked about she's a she's a immigrant. She was grew up in, in Chicago, and she remembers the day when she was in school and she heard some girls behind her making fun of her black skin and saying how ugly it was. Mm. I, got, I was so I was like that's so messed up for a little girl to have to experience that. And then she and she wasn't bitter. She was she was just like it hurt me. Mm-hmm. And we have to white Christians say this hurts us too. This is not mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And we want to work against that. And don't assume that talking about race and caring about racism is equivalent to critical race theory. It's right. not. It's totally different. So right. listen to people, empathize, and then come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to fight this with the gospel. Right. It takes so much effort to do exactly what you said, to not allow the culture, whether it's secular conservative culture or secular liberal culture, to um, sway what we care about and to determine how we confront injustice and discrimination. Because like you said, I do think that there can be a backlash from people who say, you know what, it all seems like critical theory because, I mean, just to give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt, when they have a pastor, for example, who is promoting things like white fragility and how to be an anti-racist, they assume that from the people who they trust to be their evangelical mentors, that this is the only way to care about racism. And they're thinking, okay, but I'm not anti-capitalist, but I don't believe that everyone is just racist no matter what. They don't even know from their own pastors what it looks like to, in a godly and biblical and gospel-driven way, to confront real prejudice and to confront real racism. And so there are a lot of Christians who are unfortunately, because they don't buy into critical theory, they they don't know what to do. So they assume that they should just forego the conversation altogether. And then you've got people who also say, okay, well, if this is the only way to confront racism, reading white fragility and to upending the systems of oppression that we don't even know what it is and just uh, embracing subjectivism and queer theory and all this stuff— then some people say Christians say, okay, well, I guess I'm, I guess I'm on board with that because I don't, I don't know how else to do it. But I think our obligation as Christians, which you said so well, and especially as pastors who are shepherding flocks, is to make sure that we are cutting through the noise and that we are looking to the objective truth of the word of God to confront real injustice, to confront real prejudice, to confront real unfairness, not with the strategies of the world, not with the strategies of the flesh, but with the strategy of the gospel, realizing that that does bring reconciliation. And that doesn't mean that there aren't actions associated Mm -hmm. with those things in the same way that we try to fight against abortion. Um, But it does mean that we don't forego our base and our foundation and our worldview that is founded on the word of God. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? I totally agree. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think we're, there, there are dangers on both sides. I just want people to be aware of both and to preach explicitly about both. For pastors, I, I just say no more dancing around the edges, no more just using this vague language about you know injustice in general. We have to call out explicitly what are these ideas in our culture, what are they, and why we reject them. I, I also would avoid just using it jargon uh both yeah because people just say things like well we're against cultural marxism okay but what does that even mean you have to be specific because otherwise they'll just relabel it and repackage it and sell the same lies mm-hmm. you have to say this is why we don't believe that race and gender and sexuality are all identical they're they're not just different forms of oppressive axes this is how they're different this is the basis for solidarity as Christians. God's a creation of us, God's redemption of us. Not our, we're not, we don't solidarity in, primarily in race, class, and gender. We have it in our creation in, uh, creation in God's image. We have it in our sin. We have it in our redemption. So we have to do more than just making these vague statements about how we, we disagree with uh, these different movements. For, but why? Christians are, I think, desperate for clear teaching that, again, will, I think, take a, a middle road between, I think, a, well, two totally godless worldviews, one based on things like actual white supremacy, which, thank God, our country has, truly thank God, God has purged us to a large extent of those ideas that are so wicked. And yet there's another error, too, which is to embrace this very equally unbiblical idea around cre- uh, creating us, uh, an oppressors and oppressed classes. I think we have to, again, say both of those are wrong. And here's what the scripture teaches about our fundamental solidarity as believers. Yes, I think that it would be so helpful if pastors, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast, if pastors want to talk about uh, you know, racism from the pulpit. I think that that is a worthy subject, but yeah. rather than just parroting the things that we read from critical theorists and these kind of just very vague and and nebulous terms like systemic racism, define those things. Like tell Mm -hmm. your congregants, I mean, there's a lot of controversy around whether or not systemic racism actually exists. But if you're talking about injustice, if you're talking about discrimination, if you're talking about prejudice, it's not enough. And I think ultimately it's divisive just to throw out these terms without telling your congregants what they mean, how you see them manifesting themselves, what the Bible most importantly has to say about these things, and what can actually be done. I mean, that's what we do about, you know, the injustice surrounding abortion. We know exactly Mm -hmm. what it looks like. We know where it happens. We know why it happens. We know the systems in place that are um, continuing and the philosophies in place that are continuing to uh, allow abortion to persist. And we do tangible things. If racism exists in that way, it's a little bit more complicated because so much of, you know, hatred just exists in the human heart. It's hard to Mm -hmm. define how it manifests itself. But if that is your endeavor to talk about racism as a pastor, I do think that it is incumbent upon you 
to know specifically what these terms mean and to not let critical theory define oppression, define racism and define those things. But to look at the objective truth. And I do think that while it is so important to listen to experiences, I do think because we believe that there is an objective standard bearer in God, it is important also for Christians to know the data. So is a, a narrative that a conservative or a liberal a person in the media telling you is true. Is it, is it true? Like, is it true based on the numbers mm-hmm. that a certain, uh, a certain thing is happening all the time? Is that really true? It might be true that some people feel that way, but if it's not true, according to the data, then it's not something that we need to be blowing out of proportion either. We just don't need to be taking cues from the world is what I'm trying to say. Do you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I think I also appreciate pastors in general, try to be apolitical but then I would say, then, but, but, but here's the thing. Well, I, I do too, actually, when I talk about critical theory, you know, I, I'm a political conservative. I'm not going to pretend I'm not. But I try to show people that rejecting this ideology, this, this is a worldview. This has theological implications. You can be extremely politically liberal, as many like James Lindsay, for example. A lot of these atheists are politically liberal and are still totally rejecting this what they view as a dangerous, pernicious religion based on critical theory. So the point I'm trying to make is you don't have, don't turn this into a political debate. It's for, for me, my motivation is almost entirely theological. I'm seeing people's theology being wrecked by these ideas. Right. And so and I understand that obviously politics should flow from our theology, but theology but politics are downstream. Mm-hmm. I want to attack the headwaters. Where are these? Why are we having such again bad politics? And often it's because you can trace it back to what I care much more about: bad theology. So I want to attack the problem there. And I so I understand. I understand some some pastors don't want to be political, but my point is these ideas are not political. These are deeply. They will affect how we view things like who is God, what is our purpose in life, who am I as a person, how do I relate to other people. You have to speak on those questions because yes. that is so the true. entire biblical narrative. Yeah, uh, you will destroy it if you give into these ideas. Yes. And when you hear things like I've heard, for example, that uh, believing that the word of God is inerrant and authoritative is in itself a, a white su- supremacist yes. idea. Well, when you take that away, then you know, we don't have any basis from which to have conversation. So again, I would encourage, like you've just encouraged Christians to know the fundamentals of our faith. That's what all of this is built off of. If you know who God is, who Jesus is, the 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 nature of the Bible, the authoritative and inerrant nature of the Bible, these are all the things that we need to know that we are building a worldview off of. And if we have those uh those blocks, if we have those founding blocks, then we can answer the other questions. It makes it a lot easier, I think, to navigate these very confusing terms and the very confusing world of critical theory. But if you don't have those foundational theological views locked in, if you don't know whether or not you trust the Bible, if you're not really sure who the nature of God is, if Jesus really is the only way, truth, and the life, if you don't really understand the gospel— then it's going to be very easy to make critical theory your religion because a lot of the language of critical theory almost echoes Christianity with oppression and and justice and Mm -hmm. words like that. And like you said, that is destructive, not just to your faith, but I would argue for entire societies. 
So can I say two things quickly before I know we've gone around forever? This is great. I could talk about this for hours. And uh, But can I say just two things yes. to people before we finish up? Um, one would be to, if you're a Christian who is listening, who is a person of color and who has been hurt by racism, either outside the church or even within the church, what I would just really plead with you to, to recognize is that while critical theory and critical race theory is, is its claims to care about you, to, to want to give you to make you flourish to, to it wants to fight for you it claims those things but it's not based on the gospel and so i i understand the pain that you probably they might feel but this is not the way to solve it and the the church as broken as she is as full of sin as she is they're god's people they're mm-hmm. your siblings and so i i again i i, I want to say i understand and empathize with your hurt but don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the gospel. And there, there are there the the, the church and the scriptures have rich resources mm-hmm. to fight against the very things that you hate. Um, and and I just just plead that you would stay the course. Um, and then for if there are non Christians who are listening to this show, and this might be a little bit for them, they're like, why well, don't I get critical theories a problem? But I want to also point people back to the alternative, which is, again, Christianity is is the, the true and good worldview. And it's not because so critical theorists would say that their worldview is for justice and, and against oppression. And Christianity is just another form of oppression, actually. And I would say, no, no, you don't understand. Christianity, because it's true, is the way to find what you're looking for, mm. which is true justice but here's the hard part. Christianity starts with not seeking justice, but with your own injustice. All of us are actually on the wrong side of history. The history mm-hmm. ends with mm-hmm. God winning. And you want to be on the right side. Well, the only right side of history is God's side. Mm. And all of us are on the wrong side. No matter how hard we try, we are all sinners. We are all wicked. And there's only one righteous person who is Jesus. And he came to rescue bad people like us. And so I think while your thirst for justice is commendable, remember that you yourself are just as bad as the people you despise. Jesus told a, a really great parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And his parable, the Pharisee was this really religious person. The tax collectors were actually traitors. They were oppressors. They would rob their own countrymen and give to the imperial colonialist Romans the taxes. So you have a religious guy and an oppressor. And in the temple, they're both praying. And the religious Pharisee says, thank you that I'm not like this guy. He's, he's wicked. He's a thief. He's immoral. I thank you, God, I'm not like him. Mm-hmm. And the tax collector, the oppressor said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He knew how messed up he was. And Jesus said, the tax collector, the sinner, the bad guy went home justified. Because the person who exhausts themselves will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself, like the sinner, like the tax like the prostitutes, they will be exalted. So Christianity begins the opposite way. It says, you start by realizing that you yourself are unjust and throw yourself at the mercy, at the feet of the just one. So that's just a message to the people. There's a way, a better way to approach reality in a- critical theory. Amen. You tweeted the other day, and I'm paraphrasing, 
you know, praise the Lord that when he died on the cross, he didn't say do better. He says it is finished. Like how, how much more of a satisfying and peaceful message can you get than that? Um, thank you so much for taking the time to have this wonderful, long conversation. But I just know that God is going to be glorified through it. And he's glorified through your your study and, and your work in this field that not enough people are talking about. Can you tell everyone where they can find you? Sure. So the best way probably is Twitter. I'm just at Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I. And my collaborator, Dr. Pat Sawyer, is real Pat Sawyer. Uh, also on Twitter, R-E-A-L-P-A-T-S-A-W-Y-E-R. And it, but I have a website. I'm like the only Neil Shenvey in the world right now. I think if you Google, <laughs> not, and that's not, I just it's, a, it's not, kind of a rare name even for an Indian. Uh, but it's uh, if you Google Neil Shenvey, you'll find my website. You'll find my Twitter handle. Uh, so you can go there. And there's lots of resources. We have an article at the Gospel Coalition. We have a, a booklet on critical theory through Ratio Christi. It's free. It's 30 pages long. Um, lots of footnotes, lots of primary sources. So yeah, that's Twitter or just Googling my name is the best way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shinby. Thank you, Allie. 